you have your Bibles, and you can, even if you don't have a copy, there's one in front of you. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, Kyle read the scripture this morning, uh, Isaiah 9 chapter 6, or verse 6. But if you're a guest with us, thank you for joining us. I am Chris. I am not Pastor Rob. Pastor Rob is actually in Chiapas, Mexico. And today, I think they're flying back, but I believe they got caught in Mexico City. So be praying for them. I think they're trying to find a way out. And so uh, be praying for the mission team. They've done a tremendous job along with our pastor that went over. And they got to pack over 2,000 uh, backpacks that are going to go all through the uh, area surrounding Chiapas into the southern part of Mexico. And just like you saw in the video in the IMB, uh, the gospel is being advanced in that area with the Harvest Evangelism Association that we partner with. And they got to minister to over 700 pastors at a pastor's conference where they will be trained and equipped to take those backpacks into the areas and the villages and the surrounding communities that they are engaged in. So a tremendous opportunity for us to continue to pray for them and pray for the gospel to go out uh, in those areas and pray for our team as they try to get back here safely. So uh, I am Chris. I'm the missions and family pastor here, and uh, I'll be preaching the word today. And so uh, before, as you turn to Isaiah 9, I do kind of want to open up with a, a story. Uh, this is the, the start of our Christmas series. It's going to be a four-part series, and it's going to be called the, the Greatest Gift. And, and we're entering our Advent season. It's a time where you we remember uh, and, and we anticipate the coming of Christ. And, and the Israelites had a very similar anticipation. And, and that word reminds me in the Christmas season, reminds me of growing up with my family. And uh, my parents lived uh, overseas because my dad was in the mil military. And one particular uh, Christmas, I remember, we lived in Guam. It was a small island off this the uh, uh, Philippines and south of the Philippines. And so we're, we're doing our Christmas traditions. And, you know, you have to really work hard to really highlight Christmas in Guam because you have palm trees and, and coconuts and, and it's warm season instead of cold. And so my mom worked overtime to really just celebrate Christmas while we were living there. And so we, we kind of did all the decorations. It was Christmas Eve. And my mom's like, okay, we're going to go see Christmas lights. And I'm like, Christmas lights? There's not a whole lot of Christmas lights, but okay. So we went out, and, and we were driving around the base, and uh, we showed back up at the house, and all the Christmas gifts had arrived already under the Christmas tree. And we put cookies and milk out, and there was a bite of the cookie. And I was like, did Santa show up? This is the greatest. He came early to our house because he likes us more than all the other kids in the United States over in the lower 48s. And so, uh, but my dad, he didn't go with us. I'm like, why didn't you come with us? Well, he, we, I wanted to get a shower, he said. So he was in the shower. And uh, so while we got home, he was still in the shower. And at eight years old, I began to think, huh, my dad didn't go. There was a bite out of the cookie. And he's in the shower. He didn't hear anything, although he has like a military surplus of armory in the house just in case somebody breaks in. There's a surveillance camera. He's the captain of the military police. And somehow this guy comes in the house and gives us gifts, and he doesn't know. So that was the start of how my understanding of Christmas shifted. And I know we have a multitude of ears in the room. So I'll let you, as the parents, reveal the, the true Santa, which we teach that to our kids, that Santa is real. St. Nicholas, and it's like the parents are already looking at me like, what? So, but we teach this reality to our kids, and, uh, but I've already gone too far. But as, as an eight-year-old, as an eight-year-old, I remember this anticipation of Santa coming. And like the, the Christmas morning comes and we ripped apart our Christmas presents. And then it was over in like 30 seconds. And then we play with the boxes and we make forts out of them. 
and then the Christmas presents uh, are there, and you still play with them, and then and then the next thing you know, you're thinking about your birthday coming up, and, and Easter, and all these things, and then I get engaged to my lovely wife, and there was a completely different tradition, so for the first time, I celebrate Christmas with the in-laws, and so we go in, and we don't rip apart the Christmas presents, and like go through all the gifts real fast, we would sit down one by one, and Everybody took a gift in a circle, and you would watch as each person opened a gift. And I'm sitting there at a 20-year-old plus, a little over 20, going, oh, I just want to open this thing. And then there's my mother-in-law just admiring the wrapping. I'm like, it's not about the wrapping. What are you doing? And she'll take the little corner off. Oh, this gift was wrapped so nice. And the anticipation was killing me. Just get into the gift and let's get on because it's about me. I want to open my gift. And I'm in like 24 years old. And so uh, I looked over to my fiance at the time. And I'm like, oh, no. And later on, I'm like, this is not how we're going to do our Christmas. We're just going to wrap it and just get into our gifts. And so we have our kids, and they start getting a little older, and we're like, okay, we're going we're gonna to make this special. We're going to bring them down the stairs, and we're going to make you wait on the stairs. And then we're going to take your picture on the stairs. Then I'm going to go and make sure the fire started and the coffee started. Meanwhile, my kids are going, Dad, just come on. Let's get this thing over with. And so we walk downstairs, and I'm like, just wait. We're going to hand out the gifts one at a time, and we're going to enjoy unwrapping the gifts. And I became my mother-in-law. <laughs> what is happening? In, in a like fashion, this season does bring a, a unique anticipation. And as we know, uh, this, this season of Christmas does bring an anticipation. Uh, and it is this wonderful gift that we're talking about this morning. And the, and, and the, the, the greatest gift that we're going to unwrap is obviously this morning, not uh, an Xbox 360 or an iPhone 11 XR, which is a 10, I know. Okay, sorry, guys. But uh, it's, it is something greater than that. And it is what the Israelites themselves were anticipating. It is what they were looking forward to and eagerly wanting just to get to. As you guys know, the context of the Israelites, they were in captivity. Most of it was done to themselves because of their disobedient and idolatry and their worship of, of themselves, put themselves in this position. But they were eagerly awaiting a deliverer who was going to come to set them free. And most of them were like, let's get this here already. Uh, and then uh, Isaiah writes and pens these truths that we're about to read 680 years before Jesus was even born. These truths were penned. And so we find ourselves in Isaiah, and hopefully my story gave you time to turn there. Uh, but we are in, if you have a Bible in front of you, it's page 573. We're going to read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. If you guys would just rise and stand with me just as a way to acknowledge the honor of God's word this morning. So starting in verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And he and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. 
Lord, as your word was just read, and we put ourselves as close as we can to the context of the Israelites this morning. We attempt to the best of our ability to see through the lens of the Israelites reading this just poetic, poetic narrative. We ask God that you reveal your word to us this morning. May it pierce our hearts. May we be open to allow your word to be exposed and really find out what you intended the original hearers of this word to know. And may we glean and understand the truths that can be applied in our lives today. And may we not impose our worldview onto your word. The Lord Jesus exposed the word to our heart, revealing truths. And I pray even that they will extend beyond the points that we'll hear today. That supernaturally your word will speak to the personal issues and circumstances and situations of our lives. Just like the Israelites. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I mentioned earlier, just the background of the context of this, this story is Israelite, Israel is under bondage when Isaiah, the prophet, writes these truths uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And the Israelites were were under the judgment of God because of their disobedience. In Assyria, a foreign land came in, a foreign nation came in and swept across the land and created havoc, causing the people of Israel to be in bondage and in slavery and oppressed and, and marginalized. And that's the situation that they're in. After multitudes of warnings from other prophets alike, Isaiah writes to the Israelites, giving them a word of encouragement, saying, have hope because there is, a, there is hope at the end of this. Have hope because although your hearts are far from God, although your worship, your idolatry is uh, being revealed, there's hope. Even though the suffering that is upon you is for most of you, self-imposed because of their worship. Their worship was hypocritical. And specifically what God was dealing with in Isaiah was their worship was being masked by hypocrisy because they were oppressing sin and idolatry. And so that's the specific context here, is that the Israelites, they were bringing the offering like they were supposed to by law to God. They were going through the ritualistic and symbolic steps necessary to, uh, to cover their sins. And, and Isaiah in the former chapters were outlining that they were doing this, but Isaiah says, but your hearts are far from them, are far from me, because you're still operating in sin, disobedience, and idolatry. And so Jesus, or God, calls them out for their idolatry and says, if you don't repent and turn to me, you're going to pay the consequences of your sin. And so that, that's what happens. Assyria, as I mentioned, comes in, sweeps across the land. God allows them to be overtaken. The promised land that was given to them was removed from them. The things that God said was their inheritance was now the very thing that reminded them of what they could have had. And so they live in oppression. They live in defeat. They live hopelessly. But then Isaiah mentions some amazing truths. And he gives the king, this coming king, four incredible titles that we're going to hone in on, and we're going to remind ourselves and unwrap the beautiful gifts that Christ has brought to us this morning. And we're going to take our time, and may it go over noon, and you'll be like, come on, hurry up, like my mother-in-law, finish. Uh, I'm just made it up, I'm kidding. But uh, we are going to unwrap each one of these character qualities, these traits that Isaiah gives to this coming king. And the first one is that, that he mentions is the wonderful counselor. 
A wonderful counselor is a king who rules with divine wisdom. A king who rules with divine wisdom. Jesus provides a supernatural divine wisdom to guide and lead our lives. You know, I was researching some, some, some dynamics with the need for wisdom in, in our, our, our context and our culture. Uh, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, 51%, 51% say that they struggle with anxiety, stress, worry, panic, and or depression. 51%, the majority of Americans admit to dealing with uh, work-related stress, home stress, financial stress, anxiety related to circumstances, panic attacks, and deeper issues of depression. The top categories of, of disorder, of mental health disorder, 51% identify with one of these, anxiety disorder, panic disorder, social anxiety, phobias, like arachnophobia, which... I'm going to say spiders, no thanks. I can handle snakes, but not spiders. Anybody? Okay, snakes. But there are serious phobias that, that we deal with. Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, guilty. Uh, no comments, students. Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder, some of these more like serious issues. Major depressive disorder. Persistent depressive disorders. 51% would identify with one of those different disorders. Uh, no wonder so many of us talk with one another and, and we, the questions that come up is, how do I handle this situation? What do, I, what do I do about that particular situation? And many of us, every single one of us in this room, has a, a situation or a circumstance, a life uh, dynamic that you're dealing with right now that you're looking for wisdom with and you don't know the answers to. Some of them might be as basic as what university should I attend or should I date this guy or girl or more serious issues of what do I do with you know my family who's, who's ill or uh, you know, deeper issues that, that we're dealing with. All of them still uh, permeate uh, and, and uh, kind of fill our hearts with anxiety, and what do we do with that? And can you imagine the Israelites as they struggled through these, these ideas of, well, we, we know what we could have had, but we were disobedient, and now look at us. And, and you know, you wonder if some of the children of these family members who were the ones that are disobedient, and they're looking at their family going, hey, it wasn't my fault that you guys didn't walk through, you know, the trust of God in the, the crossing of the Jordan River. Like, why am I paying the consequences of roaming around the, the countryside for 40 years? Like, some of us sit, sit in, in here and deal with situations that have nothing to do with us, but people around us have caused the situation. But we're still in the middle of it. It's because we live in a broken and a, a hurting world that needs hope. And without Christ, there is no hope. Even with self-inflicted issues or non-inflicted issues. We still are under the penalty of sin and the dynamic of sin. Uh, one, one thing I've noticed in particular with this, with this mental health crisis, and I, that, that's what I genuinely believe we're in. My wife and I were talking about this uh, last week as we were talking through uh, a lot of the homelessness and, and all the, the things that we're struggling with. Is, and I don't think we have a homeless uh, population issue. It's a mental health issue is what we talked about. And, 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 and to just to be clear, in the context of our morning, we're, we are not going to exhaust this topic and be able to give all the answers that we have right now. So I, I just affirm that, that in this moment, we're illuminating, one, a problem, and two, giving a, cl a clear direction on what way to go. But if you're dealing with deep depression and deep anxiety, uh, one, Jesus has hope for you and two we want to walk with you through that because there are ways and 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 people we can connect you with like alan marks who is very skilled in this particular area of health uh, mental health but 
One thing I've noticed working here now or serving you guys for over the last 12 years is our benevolent ministry has has increased. And if you get a chance to come up to our church and, and be about the daily operations of our church, one thing is common is, is on a daily basis, a, one of our pastors typically drops everything that we're doing uh, to serve someone who comes and need, just needs help. And one thing I've noticed is most of the help is, is, is someone who... Uh, in layman's perspective, in a non-professional degree, has a need of, of mental health issues. They're dealing with anxiety. They're dealing with substance abuse. They're still dealing with different things of schizophrenia. Uh, Kyle and I, just a few days ago, or, or last week, helped a gentleman, and, and uh, it, you know, we worked together to get him down and get him some help and getting him established with uh, a... a long-term care plan, but still, uh, as you, you minister to these individuals, uh, we're no different. You know, they may be in a moment of crisis where they just need some warm food and warm clothes, but the truth is, without Jesus, we still have the same hopelessness as them. And that's what God is, that's what Isaiah is trying to reveal here, is that he is our wonderful counselor. And if you're dealing with some of these bondages, there's a great resource, again, I'll jot this down by Neil Anderson called the Bondage Breaker. And we would love to come alongside of you, and that's what we're here for. Uh, but he is described as the king who rules with divine wisdom. And Jesus provides a supernatural, divine peace that surpasses understanding. In the middle of your difficulty, in the middle of your stress, in the middle of your struggle, uh, that's why daily I have to put my heart before the Lord. And uh, when I get anxious and, and just ask my family, I have a tendency to constantly operate in a state of anxiousness. Is that going to get cleaned? Is this going to happen? Is that going to be done? Is this? And then it just, and when I put my heart before the Lord and I just saturate my soul in his word and I just read the pages, it's, just, it's amazing how that wonderful counselor emerges and becomes the king of my heart, and brings me peace. The next character quality, the next identity that Jesus, or sorry, I keep saying that, Isaiah gives this coming king, the one who to set us free is mighty God, a title reserved for God himself. All through the scriptures, the term mighty God is only used for Yahweh, the one true God, the God of heaven and earth, the one who spoke light out at 186,000 miles a second at the beginning of time, he spoke creation into existence, is the same God that Isaiah gives the title to this coming king for. Don't miss this. The ones who read this passage in the Old Testament, the ones, uh, the Israelites reading this, would have had their minds, hearts, and spirits in, awakened to Isaiah just gave this coming king the title of God himself. Only time, Isaiah chapter 10, 21, Jeremiah 32, 18, describes Jesus, or God, as mighty God, and again, reserved for him alone. And with that, over 680 years before the birth of Jesus, there were 108 prophecies or foretelling of this coming Christ with the birth specifically. Over 300 prophecies shared about the coming of Christ, but particularly 108 were about the birth of Christ. And if eight, statistically, if only eight of those 108 prophecies were fulfilled by someone, it would be one in cotillion probability, which is a number we can't even fathom. So mathematically, it's an uncomprehendable number for Jesus to fulfill 108 of those prophecies about the birth of Christ, which, by the way, Jesus fulfilled 100%. What does that mean for us? That means we can trust him. We can put our full faith and trust, our life, our brokenness, our hurt, our anxiety. We can 
trust him, that he is our wonderful counselor. It also means this, that he is sovereign, meaning he isn't surprised by your pain. He didn't go one day and think, oh, that catches me off. That, that catches me by surprise. I didn't expect that to happen. I didn't think Chris would respond that way when his kids were disobedient. I knew he was, I didn't, I didn't realize that Chris would flip a lid when his kids didn't clean his room and uh, just want to take everything away from his children and just have a blank floor. That, that, sorry, personal issues too much, TMI. That's the, that's the anxiety. I'm, th that doesn't come by surprise to him. He knew that was going to happen. And here's the reality that he wants to shape the fact that he's God. The fact that Isaiah gives him the title of God alone. The fact that he uses the word mighty God means that he's sovereign. That means that the circumstances that sift through his permissive will don't surprise him. But in fact, God has chosen to allow them to grow us. The very difficulty that you're facing, the anxiety that you're dealing with, are the very things that God says, I want to shape your heart with. The relational turmoil, the, the relational anxiety. He, he's, not putting, he's not allowing that to happen so he can punish you. The Israelites were allowed to have their promised land removed and captivity to be uh, oppressed on them for this reason and this reason only. So they will return to God. He longs for you and I to experience the freedom of community and communion with him like it was intended from the very beginning. And so when you look at those situations and, and, and you find yourself without a job or with disease or you're dealing with cancer or that guy breaks up with you, it's not catching God off. He's not going, oh, I didn't expect that. But instead, because he's mighty God, he says, let me shape your heart. So every single 100% of your relationships that you find yourself in is divinely ordained by God. And therefore, every single one of them is designed to shape your heart. He wants to. He's, he's, he's wanting to shape you through those relationships. And so allow him to do that. Paul mentions this when he says, rejoice when you face trials of many kind and tribulation. First of all, that's not my like, first response. Like, Paul, you have lost your mind. You're just chilling in prison under house duress in Rome. And you're just like, I just wonder, like, he was in prison in like real dungeons and then like being beaten by people. I wonder how he really felt to be in a house arrest in Rome. I don't, under the like main Roman government, I wonder if it was that bad. I don't know. He was probably like, this ain't too bad. I'm going to rejoice when you find yourselves under trials. Now I'm, I'm expanding. That's not necessarily what may have been happening. But you wonder, as he pens these, he's like, Are you, do you know what I'm going through? You want me to do what? You want me to rejoice in my trials? Yes, because what he's trying to say is, as God has allowed that to sift through his will, he wants to shape you and draw him back to you. What a great, beautiful picture of grace. It is the very pain that you experience that reveals God's grace. It is his grace that you get to experience pain. For without pain, there is no repentance the same thing that you find in a physical uh, affirmities. All through the Old and New Testament, people were riddled with leprosy, the lack of touch and feel. And these lepers were scarred and their skins were falling off. They would burn themselves because they would feel no pain. And it never taught them, yeah, I probably shouldn't let this just sit on the stove. And what, oh, until I, someone brings that to my attention. Oh, I don't feel any pain. I guess it's not that bad. That's exactly what God is trying to shape through your pain. So he wants to reach your heart. So God is sovereign. It doesn't surprise him. 
The next title that's given to him by Isaiah is Everlasting Father. A compassionate protector as a good father should be with his child. Compassionate protector. You know, we face storms of life all the time. We're really honing in on a lot of these attributes and aspects of our life because they're real. Whether it's abuse or death or sickness, pain, heartache. God wants to be that father, that comforter in times of chaos and brokenness and trouble. And it becomes a relationship with God. You know, some of the most refining times of my life is when I go through trouble with people. They say that people who serve in the military together or in like police work and things of that nature, and they have they 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 face difficult circumstances in times of warfare or in times of, of, of struggle are the very things that bond those people even tighter together. And uh that's exactly what God allows through his permissive will to happen because what he wants to do is say, let me walk with you through this. Let the body of Christ walk together through this in times of chaos, in times of brokenness, in times of heartache, in times of hurt. It is those times that will bind our hearts together as a people through the Spirit of God. So don't leave those things in secret. Don't hide them and, and walk through the doors every Sunday morning, putting on this facade that everything's okay. But in fact, your marriage is in shambles, or you're addicted to alcohol, or you can't stop looking at pornography, or you cannot uh, feel like your, your life's a mess, and you have kids who are, are, are running away from home and living in depravity. Because those are the very things that have been confessed amongst the people that are here. And if we were honest to say, let's walk through this together. Let, let's, let's just put it out there and, and, and be raw and honest with each other. It's that that binds our hearts together. And then when the battle comes, the, the battle that we're in for the souls of mankind, we're, we're connected arm and arm together. When I was 17 years old, uh, my family went through some very difficult times. Um, my dad lost his job, and my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And my mom and dad were talking about divorce and separating. All of this was happening at the same time. And I was a very new uh, kind of follower of Christ, new to the church. And, and it, was, it was that youth group uh, that just surrounded me. And I remember uh, just, just, just crying. And it was this whole youth group together. And I was just like, I am, I'm like starter on the football team. And like I'm this tough guy. And I joke with the youth group. And I'm supposed to be all, and then all of a sudden I'm just breaking down. And I remember the youth, youth pastors and uh, youth leaders just surrounding us and me and my sister and just laying hands on us and just praying. And there's just this spirit of healing that washed over me. And, and it, it, but it took me just being humble and just to say, man, I don't have it together. I don't have it figured out, but that's what I want you to think. And I remember that moment was profound because it, that was a shifting moment in my heart to serve the Lord. And it was a spiritual aha moment of, oh, oh, that is what the body of Christ looks like. Oh, oh, it's not about paintball and fun all-night lock-ins, which are evil. I will never do one while I'm here. Sorry, guys. That's not what church is about. Oh, it's about the, the, my brokenness and real stuff. And that was the start of my desire to serve vocationally in the local church. But even recently, God has been our family's protector and everlasting father. And I know I can trust him because he's sovereign. And he's our, he's our wonderful counselor right now. 
Uh, every time I preach to you guys, I get all emotional. But we're going through just like some of, some of you, just family sickness. And, uh, you know, uh, my wife and I got married 20 years ago. And uh, some of you know uh, this dynamic with uh, my father-in-law and my mother, mother-in-law. You know, he's been a pastor for all since I've known him and serving as uh, a lead pastor and associate pastor and now on the mission field and and now he's at Sugar Grove Community Church and he's helped to just just be used by the Lord to just impact that community as missions and discipleship pastor and he's now retiring. Uh, but as most of you, a lot of you know, who are family friends with him, uh, he's been diagnosed with Parkinson's. And, uh, you know, he's very tough and he's very, he's, he's always been real strong. And, and um, just to see him really frail, uh, it's, it's been hard. And, and watching him in, in the, the times of his life that he should be facing retirement. And in my mind, should be like the, the golden years of his life as, as the Lord repays him back for all the 40 plus years of ministry. Now he can just enjoy and travel. But instead, uh, him and uh, Kathy uh, struggle, struggle moving, uh, uh, no longer able to wrestle with the grandkids and uh, has a hard time holding his own plate. Uh, And it's been difficult to watch. So, uh, you know, we can get angry. Why, God, would you allow that to happen to my father-in-law who has given his whole life to you? But instead, what I witness is an incredible grace by both of them. Never complaining. Never saying, I wish this wouldn't happen. But just this incredible grace and peace that's like, I just hope I'm half the man he is. Just continuing to serve. The first of the year, he's going from 10% time to the church to fully retiring. But they're able to face that with this supernatural peace and, and continue just to pour out into us, praying over us, asking how we're doing, checking on us, calling us, texting us, instead of looking intro, in, introverted on their circumstances. And, and I'm complaining that my kids remain clean. And so I look at that circumstance and go, you are our protector. You are our mighty God. You are our divine wisdom. In the middle of that brokenness and chaos and turmoil, he's provided that to us too. He showed that to me at 17 and he's walking that with us now. But because when I was 17, I got to experience the love of the church and the body of Christ in these truths. And now today, I'm able to look at that circumstance and go, wow, everything I get is, is more than I deserve. And finally, the last piece, a last title given is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. A ruler who will bring God's promised peace to mankind. And oh, has he done that. It is the reason why we celebrate this season of Advent. It's the reason why we we can anticipate this season, because he has come. He has brought peace in the middle of turmoil. He has brought hope in the middle of devastation. He has brought this sense of undeserved grace to mankind. And therefore, we have a marvelous message to share 
with our neighbors, our co-workers, our siblings, our children, our wives, our husbands, our parents, is that there is hope for the hopeless. And if you have that hope, you have an incredible message of anticipation. That's why Christ came, so the church no longer exists for themselves. Israel was established as a nation for all the other nations. God said, I'm going to choose you and model for the world what I want to do through you for the whole world. And he did that with Abraham. He did that with Adam and Eve. And he said, I'm going to choose you as a people. So you can, I'm going to bless you so you can bless the nations. He has blessed you so you can bless the nations. You are now ambassadors and representatives of a king. We have these wonderful messages. These one of the truths. Even though we exist in chaos, our world is broken. We have, we have a lot of needs around us. He has brought an answer of hope. You are the provision. God established the church, and you are the church. And so when we look around at our circumstances, our own heart, we look at our family, our siblings, our, our children, our, our co-workers, our school, and, and the world, and we go, what's, what's happening? We're going to hell in a handbasket. We have no hope. And we're just like, well, I guess I'm just going to clock in at church and, and get my spirit on and then walk out and, and just see if I can make it for another six days through this horrible world. God has established you as the provision Who's going to come and who's going who's to make this right? Who's going who's to return people's hearts to God? Man, I hope that pastor will do that. Maybe we'll have a revival over here. Or maybe we sing songs loud enough. No, you are the provision that God planned from the beginning. If you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you've been adopted into the family of God, you're a child and heir of the king, and now your title is ambassador to the throne, you represent Jesus. You are now God with skin on. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You represent Jesus. You are filled with the power of God. You're not the second coming of Christ. You are, you are not the... Christ himself, but you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have 100% of God living in you. So now what does that mean? That you are a wonderful counselor. You are a compassionate protector. You are one who can bring peace to mankind. And you have divine wisdom and a promised peace. Not so you can just enjoy that. So that everywhere you set your foot, the presence of God is with you. So this morning as we begin to conclude. We land with this. That Jesus, he, he is the gift that we've been unwrapping all morning. We get him, not his presence, not his gifts of the Spirit or the gathering of the church. We get him. The juxtapose or the, the plot twist of the prodigal son that we all are very familiar with, it's a parable that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God, that there's an younger son who wants his inheritance from his father. There's so much background there. He takes the inheritance. He rolls out. He spends his inheritance on wild living. And then he realizes, oh man, I need to be near my father because where I am in the middle of my depravity is not working. So he returns and the father leaves his, his position. He comes and he runs to the son. He puts a robe around him, puts a ring on his finger and says, my son was dead, but now he's alive. The older son is the interesting part about that story because the older son was angry that his son, his brother came back. He wouldn't even go into his father's presence. He stayed out on the front porch because his religion kept his heart far from his father. The, the plot twist there isn't the inheritance of money because his son took it all. 
and ran with it. And the heart of the older son was exposed because he wasn't interested in being near the father. He ultimately still wanted the financial inheritance of his father. So he stayed outside when someone was dead and came back to life. And he said, no, I'm too angry to be in my father's presence. How many of us are just like that here today? Sorry, mini sermonette on top of this sermon, but it reveals what Israel was dealing with. They were in rebellion because they did not care to be near the father. They were more concerned about form and ceremony on how they did church than being close to Jesus. And how many of us are guilty and and being married to policies and procedures? How we do worship, how we conduct and operate our facilities, how we run Sunday schools, or if we call it Sunday school, how dare we give it another name? I don't care what you call it, just do something. Jesus in that narrative is exposing the same heart that the Israelites had, and they missed the titles given to Jesus. The Pharisees who were hearing that story with the prodigal son missed the titles that were given here. May we not miss why we exist. We do not exist for ourselves. We exist for others. The reason we gather as a church isn't so we can fill ourselves up with spiritual nourishment and then regurgitate it in a class. It's so we're filled by the presence of God because there is a hurting and dying world that needs his hope. There's a hurting and dying people that are in here that sit for decades in these pews. And they think that you think your form and your ceremony of church is going to get you into heaven but you're just like the older son and you really only wanted the inheritance, but you don't really want to be in the presence of God because Jesus is the gift and nothing else matters. He is the gift. And when you understand that he is all that matters, nothing else matters. And then you have a church on fire and nothing can stop it. Is that the kind of people that you want to be? Then let's pray. And respond. As Kyle comes up, I want want you to respond as the Holy Spirit leads you this morning. You're here and you identify with one of those narratives. Maybe you're like the, the young son and you walked away from God and you've come back to him and you understand his grace and he is the gift. How are you using his presence in your life? to make Jesus famous? How are you sharing the hope of Christ? Maybe you're like the older son and you sit in these pews week after week after week and you think you have it good and you're all fine, but your hearts are far, far, far from him. You'll get all riled up about how we're doing church. But when we begin to talk about lost people, you're indifferent and unengaged. When we talk about dying people that are going to hell, it almost is like your eyes and heart are glazed over. But, oh, when it comes to recommendations or the color of the carpet, you'll send an anonymous email to the pastor complaining. How about you complain about the fact that you may have never shared Jesus with a lost person? And that is literally what we're called to do. That's the only thing that you're called to do is bring hope to the hopeless. And if that's you this morning, I want to challenge you to turn to the person around you and confess those things. That's step one. Let's confess that our hearts are far from Jesus and This season of Advent, the season of Christmas, reminds us that Jesus is the gift. He is our hope. And let us step out and pray for one another. Maybe that's the way you're going to respond in just a moment.
And maybe you're hurting. And you need Jesus as your mighty counselor. Your promised peace. We'll be pastors up here and, and counselors. And if you come forward and you want prayer, and there's not enough people up here to pray for you, I want to ask some of our pastoral leadership and elder qualified adults to come forward. Or just turn to the people around you and say, I, my family's in shambles. My children are hurting. We're dealing with brokenness. And let's begin to do the work in the ministry. Then walk in forgiveness. Forgive yourself. Forgive one another. And let that offense and that hurt begin the process of letting that go. And remind yourself, your family, your friends, from this day forward that Jesus is the gift. We get him. There's nothing greater that we can celebrate in this season. So I've given you several ways to respond this morning. And my prayer is that every single one of you respond in a particular way because every one of us needs Jesus. And 100% of us in this room are dealing with something because we live in a fallen, broken world. But in that promised peace, he gives us an eternal hope that one day Jesus will return and he will vanquish and remove pain. He will eradicate evil and he will distinguish all our affirmities and he will establish a new heaven and a new earth and we will get to enjoy his presence free of pain forever and ever. This is a promise and what a great promise.